0: so welcome back to our gloriously insightful podcast royal ascot a new era in style and i am so excited to welcome our next guest a true champion in the world of sustainable and responsible living her high-profile modeling career has spanned over a decade working with the world's most celebrated fashion designers and gracing the covers of all the top four vogue titles She is a world-cherished supermodel of our new age, and having realised over five years ago that she really didn't know where the clothes that she was promoting came from, she started on her own journey of self-discovery, education on the supply chain, regenerative agriculture, and the whole fashion cycle of sustainability. And lucky for us, she took her global audience on her journey with her. And daily, I thank her for that. She is, of course, our eco-warrior, progressive thinker, and climate activist, model and sustainability consultant, Arizona Muse. Hello, darling. How are you?
1: Hello, Scott. You are making me smile a lot. What a beautiful introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I sound amazing.
0: You are amazing. You are amazing. And I do thank you every day for your clarity and education on this gigantic topic. Obviously, many of us know you, but for those that might not, um, can you just give us a little bit of insight into how you started in the world of modelling?
1: Yes, I became a model a little bit late, actually. Most models begin in their mid-teens. And Mm -hmm. I did a tiny bit of modelling in L.A. as a 17, 18-year-old and then stopped. Mm -hmm. And I had my son when I was 20, And then I started my career after he was born and after he was one, when he was about one year old. So as a 21 year old, I was quite old to be doing my first round of shows in New York. And that's when my career began.
0: And I guess, I mean, obviously, those sort of early days of rocking around to castings in New York and LA, what was that like?
1: The intensity of the first year or two of being a model is really extreme, 14, 15 meetings a day. You go around New York City and you do 14 a day. You don't have time for anything else. You start early in the morning. You finish really late at night. That happens for two weeks. Every single day, including the weekends before the shows start your first season and second season, because you're meeting casting directors who are thinking about the lineups and it's the same casting directors who cast the shows in New York as the ones in Europe. So Mm -hmm. they're lining up a whole month of shows really in their heads is what I now understand. At the time, I had no idea what was going on at all. And and then after the two weeks of those intense castings, then the shows begin. So then you continue to do castings because then you'll be doing castings in front of the actual designers and you'll also be doing fittings. So then that that, uh, schedule of 14 meetings a day becomes 14 meetings a day plus three shows plus fittings. So then that's where you... Really get it? Where you're like, oh, this is why models don't sleep during the show season. <laughs> like, it's I'm not joking. That is what happens.
0: I know. And this Many- is why
1: there's a lot of pushback now in the modeling world and saying this is unrealistic. How can we be expected to even look pretty while we're doing all this?
0: It's insane, isn't it? I mean, many a year I've sort of seen a model sort of falling asleep in the chair, having already had three shows and it's still, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and she's just absolutely done in. But who were those designers right at the beginning that was sort of realising that you had a look that would work for them and their collections?
1: I got super lucky and a lot of people were interested in what I looked like. Um, I was uh, in New York, I was offered a worldwide exclusive with Balenciaga, which is amazing, but we decided not to take it because we wanted to do the shows in New York and we wanted to do the shows in in Paris as well and in milan and if i 'd taken that exclusive, Balenciaga mm-hmm. is one of the last shows in the season, so it means that you can 't do any shows up until then, so we we decided not to do that, and it was a good decision because instead I got the, the product exclusive and that is a that's kind of at the time anyway I don't know any I don't know now but that was considered kind of the best thing that could happen and then I did the product campaign in conjunction with the YSL campaign after that season and that was my first season so that was that was, really, that was really your good. first season That was my first season and my second season I did more shows than anybody else and that
0: like <laughs> brings you back to that.
1: Okay, this is why she was really tired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what an introduction. I mean, I guess, you know, that kind of schlepping around, I'm going to give this a go. And then first season, you get that kind of global exposure from a yeah. huge campaign. Yeah. And then the second season, you're just working more than anyone else. It must have made yeah, you realize sure. that actually, this is an industry that was very receptive to what you had to offer. And it probably felt deeply thrilling at the time.
1: It did. It felt like I was winning and that was an amazing feeling, which made me discard the other feelings of exhaustion or confusion or what am I really doing? Or does anyone all the insecurities that come up when you're when people focus so intensely on what you look like and nothing mm-hmm. else about you?
0: I guess, you know, because I know you and we've worked together a lot. You're deeply curious and have a have a fantastically uh, animated brain and problem solving and sort of zero tolerance for kind of like saying no it's always yes and let's explore which is really exciting so I'm sort of struggling a bit to imagine that you did sort of probably six years of your career where you were unable to sort of explore your intellect in that way I guess sort of working so hard.
1: I love that you're asking me to talk about this because it is such a big piece of my life that I feel like I needed to recover at about age 26, 27 from the previous years of having absolutely zero time for myself, Mm -hmm. nothing focused on what I was interested in or what I liked or what I wanted to do or anything like that, only focused on what do you look like? What do you look like? What do you look like? And that really sent me into a space of, whoa, I, I need to recover. I don't feel good. That was what that was the only thing I could come up with at the at age twenty-four. I don't feel good and I don't know why. And I had no idea because I couldn't articulate it the way I can now because the power of reflection and mm-hmm. retrospect is is big. But I really didn't I didn't feel like I was curious. I didn't feel like I had any interests at all, actually. And it's now as an activist many years forward. I'm starting to look at modeling as a, as an actual topic for activism, even though that's not why I started being an activist. I started being an activist for the earth for sustainability and sustainable living and in the face of climate change. But now I'm really turning all these skills that I've learned as an activist toward modeling and going, wow, let's figure this out because this needs to change. I don't like the idea of a lot of other young girls starting out to do what I did and, Mm -hmm. That's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling that their parents don't know what they're getting into, and so well-meaning parents think it's a dream of an opportunity,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it is in some ways. But I'm one who made it, and it. Even then, I can't tell you, wow, it was amazing every step of the way. And then there are thousands of models who don't, in quotes, make it, and their journeys are, I think, are even less enjoyable and the promises are even less fulfilled and and that's really unfair I think I just like modeling to be much more um, transparent
0: yeah and I guess also like you say like having a sort of sense of purpose with that profile that you're working so hard to secure like what what does that actually mean on the journey and what does it mean when you get there like what can you offer a brand other than just your appearance
1: yep And because of the appearance based career there for me anyway, and I've heard this from other models, too, there was a deep fear that it was all going to be over tomorrow and that no Mm -hmm. one would ever choose me again. Because really, it didn't have much to do with what who I was or what I achieved so far in the past. It was all about who was going to choose me. And Mm -hmm. as far as I knew, which is pretty accurate. The fashion industry, the casting directors can be very fickle and, oh, the season changes and then no one wants you anymore and then they only want somebody else. And and that is a deep, deeply um, fearful position to be in that suddenly it's all going to be over.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it matters how far you get in your career. I still know many of the sort of top, top global modelling talents and, and they still say the same thing and they might be in their sort of forties. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. extraordinary how this industry it works. It is,
1: isn't it? And that's not the way the public perception sees them. We see those iconic models as, wow, they're really here to stay. They must feel so good about themselves. They must feel so confident. And I really don't think that's true. For me, the only sense of confidence that I have didn't come from modelling at all. It came once I built other things in my life other than modelling.
0: And on that other things in your life, obviously you have a (laughs) wonderful, beautiful family. But if we're going on to sustainability, and another huge child in your life if you like if you've sort of reared it and loved it and and grown together (laughs) Like, how did how did that curiosity start when was the moment when you thought to yourself there's a penny dropping here i've been modeling for six seven years i i really don't know where these clothes come from i don't know the supply chain i don't know you know what i'm using my profile to promote so what was that talk to us about that time and that clarity
1: so I realized that I was wearing all these clothes and I realized that I actually didn't even know what they were made from and I didn't know who made them or what what it looked like to produce clothes and I quickly learned from organizations like Fashion Revolution which tells the stories of the garment workers the ones who actually make our clothes not the head designers of the fashion houses whose names we know but the women usually who live in distant countries and have very strange schedules. Often they work all night long in order to get these garments finished on time. And it's just like, wow, it's my responsibility to know this since I'm working to sell these clothes. If I don't know this, there's something fundamentally wrong. So I went on this journey. I also learned so much from Nina Morenzi, who's the founder of The Sustainable Angle. And The Sustainable Angle sources sustainable fabrics from all over the world for the fashion industry. And she started this organization about 12 years ago because she saw that it was necessary and that it was, if designers wanted to be sustainable, they often gave up even if they had the desire because finding sustainable materials was too difficult. It was like a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. No one put them all in one place for you. So that's what she does at the sustainable angle, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And through my Really, a mentorship. Nina's mentored me a lot. Uh, I've realized that I'm absolutely obsessed by materials, and I want to know everything <laughs> about nerd. them. Everything. Such a nerd for materials. Um, and and by materials, I don't just mean cotton, but I mean the chemical processing that went on the cotton after it was harvested, and then the dye, the t- the chemicals that are used in that dye. That's also material. So. Now I look at everything, like from the table in my house, I go, hmm, I wonder what was in the varnish. Or I wonder where the glass top on my coffee table came from. Like, mm-hmm. was that glass European glass or was that glass made in Asia? Or was it... And then you realize, wow, if we understand everything about all the materials that we own, we would make very different decisions when we bought those things.
0: And I think you can see it in that way that the world sort of suddenly opened up around you and it sort of met your curiosity. I think, you know, the fashion industry is is often criticised, isn't it? Because of its track record when it comes to sustainability and it's sort of all of a sudden listening and all of a sudden trying to turn around these titanics that have got into very bad habits. Now, obviously, that includes issues around exploiting natural resources and inequality and lack of inclusivity and labour exploitations Mm -hmm. and pushing a a model of overproduction and overconsumption. So as someone Mm who has a platform like yours that's linked to the industry, how do you ensure that people are listening to you and seeing you as a reliable voice?
1: I try to do as much research as I can before I say anything. I'm quite cautious uh, because I don't want to be sharing false information because that Mm -hmm. happens a lot in sustainability. And it's called greenwashing. And Mm -hmm. sometimes people do it on purpose. And quite a lot of the time people do it by accident because they simply don't know any better. And they actually believe what they're telling you, even though it's not true. And that's really dangerous because we Every one of us in the whole fashion industry, whether you're a brand or a model or an agent, you—it's—we need to know what we're talking about.
0: You know, we've we've kind of got away with it for years in the way of like the the, the fashion industry has has supplied our our, our need for consuming, um, and it's only now that we're understanding that sustainability is such a pressing matter. Now, you always yeah. say the words plan, not panic, but then there is this sort of underlying kind of movement, th- th- there is a bit of panic because we are in a, a global crisis. So what do you say to people, uh, you know, in the fashion industry who are doing this like knee-jerk reaction? There's a fair bit of greenwashing. There's probably mm. a fair bit of misguidance going on. Like, how do we, because you work as a consultant with fashion brands, how do you mm-hmm. suggest to sort of lead them into calmer waters where you can make some clear mm-hmm. decisions and move forward yeah. with uh, environmental and social issues front and centre?
1: I would say surprisingly, it's actually a really exciting journey and one that people love getting on. Mm-hmm. They really, really do. It's You learn so much. You feel much better about what you're producing or buying. There are three prongs to this. One is the consumer. The second is business. And the third is government. We need every one of these entities to move swiftly. Right now, we are all consumers. Every single individual, you are. So you can do your own part, which is to buy whatever you're buying, whether it's fashion or things for your home from businesses who are doing a better job who are making things with less toxic chemicals who are paying attention to their supply chains who are trying to localize that helps a lot what you what you can do as an individual over your lifetime becomes huge so never underestimate your own individual impact also it'll just make you feel better you'll feel a lot nicer about life so that's great second is businesses you can have a huge impact because you're ordering huge amounts of materials high quantities way bigger than any individual would ever order. So when you change suppliers to someone who's making organic material, for instance, that's a big deal for that supplier. They are Mm -hmm. very, very happy. And then they're able to continue on with their good business. So please do make those decisions. It does make a difference. And at the same time, all of us have to encourage and lobby government to shift more quickly because right now they are being lobbied, but they're being lobbied by the wrong people to not shift. So it takes people like us working with organizations like Extinction Rebellion and Fashion Revolution to get the attention of government and say peacefully and intelligently, please pay attention, make some changes. We need these changes and we want these changes and do it in a way that makes sense for everybody.
0: And I like, you know, obviously it's that kind of sense that this realisation there's an activist in us all, and that could even be personally or with business itself. When it comes to fashion and acting sustainably, who who would you say is sort of doing it right and and how are they doing it because there are a lot of people trying and a lot of brands trying yeah. uh but it's it's, uh-huh. it's fairly new territory and again the education piece isn't quite sort of uh across the board so who uh-huh. would you say when you, from your expertise and somebody who's really deep into this narrative would you say that actually those components of what you're putting together seem to be really translating to a good product
1: I'll give two examples of brands. One is called Holistic, the label, and that's a French brand. And I recently did a collaboration with them because they're so sustainable and so amazing. And I was so proud to make a design collaboration together. And the second one is Mother of Pearl an, a London based brand who is just has always been the ahead of the game in sustainability. Their creative director, Amy Powney, is so knowledgeable and does not leave any stones unturned she knows absolutely everything about all the materials she uses and why and that's what you need to to be as a brand in order to be doing things right one thing that i would like to generalize about is that luxury until very recently and possibly still currently is hiding behind the excuse that oh we're high quality so therefore we're sustainable And I'd like to dismantle that excuse. It's not true. If you're using toxic materials, and if you're not paying people properly, then it doesn't matter how well made your products are, they're still having a negative impact. So we have to stop thinking that if something's high quality, simply for that one reason, Mm -hmm. it's sustainable, we need luxury to get behind the sustainable fashion movement. Ursula de Castro, who's the founder of Fashion Revolution, says that she would like to see a world where there is no sustainable fashion industry. There's just the fashion industry and the unsustainable fashion industry. I love (laughs) that. I love that. I love that. (laughs) That (laughs) makes it
0: so clear, doesn't it?
1: Make them the other ones. Yeah. Make the others the bad ones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I love that. Um, I mean, the word sustainability—we we would probably both agree. And suddenly, I'm, you know, we're speaking to so many brands, and they're sort of suddenly have their head of sustainability. It just feels a word that's slightly overused, and that we're hearing other words, you know, in regards to responsibility or making impact. What would you say around the sort of vocabulary that we choose to use to converse about this gigantic topic?
1: There are many issues. One big one, as you said, is that the word sustainability doesn't mean anything. It's not regulated. Same with the word natural also doesn't mean anything. It's not regulated. So when you have an no, oh, it's a natural product. Like, what does that mean? Or natural food. And we're all kind of used to that now. We get it that when something says, natural on the packet of a kid's snack you're kind of like oh that probably doesn't mean it's great (laughs) (laughs) I want mine to say organic thank you very much Uh, but in fashion we're not used to that yet so we still just use this I hear it all the time people go oh and it's so sustainable and I'm like well tell me how 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 is it sustainable because it's not just sustainable things will have many different elements I also think that I see a lot of the big retailers now who are coming together with a a, um a sustainable section on their websites Mm -hmm. and they have pillars and if the product meets one of the five pillars or the three pillars or the seven pillars however many they have then they can be in the sustainable section and to me that's just not good enough like i don't want to buy a product that only is vegan like that's just not enough because it probably means that it's plastic because vegan leather or vegan wool or vegan anything just means it's polyester or polyurethane. So that's not okay. <laughs> it's just, that's, that's not a healthy thing. And also I would like to know that everyone was paid properly and that it wasn't shipped around the world seven times and all these other things I want to know about the dyeing process. So I think that we need to ha- raise our standards really quickly. Like we're we're making incremental steps for change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which would have been commendable had we started 40 years ago but we didn't we started now so now we're in the nick of time and one thing i'd like to add there is that a farmer once told me and i'll talk more about my connection with farmers but a farmer once told me that he actually doesn't feel concerned about that because i'd been getting quite angry that we'd waited till the last minute to change Mm. and he pointed out that well you know what humans do their most efficient work when they're in a rush I was like oh okay true actually I've seen that so many times even in myself when homework is due when I was a kid you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's not, that's so encouraging and I think this is some it optimism and uh, you know like you know we we have suddenly realized that you know our bad behavior over the last 50 years has got us into an awful lot of hot water uh, and it, you know excuse yeah. the pun and we really do need to all group together and make change. And I love what you say about the kind of price point area of all of this, whether it's fast fashion or whether it's luxury, it's sort of like sustainable fashion being like priced correctly for what you're paying yeah. for this product at the right price. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Cause I found that really interesting.
1: First of all, if you are lucky enough right now to have money in this mm. time after COVID mm. in this globalized era, because most of the world doesn't have enough money. So if you are someone who's lucky enough to have it, please spend it with businesses that are responsible because it is your responsibility to do that because you are someone who can afford to do it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's quite simply said. And if you can't afford it, please don't be ashamed of that. We need a systems change that allows you to make enough money to support yourself like that. You know, that's just, it's quite simplistic and factual actually. Mm. And then, I think that socially, we need to stop prioritizing a good deal that could be a really important change in just the way we think as a society. Because right now it's acceptable to be really proud of yourself when you get a good deal. Like I'm sure you've heard it so many times as I have. And I've done it myself so many times. Oh, wow. Look at this amazing dress I got. It was only 29 pounds. And like, that's okay to be proud of that. However, what does that mean when we're proud of that? And when we're flaunting that rather than look, I got this dress and it's made from vegetable tanned leather. Like, wow, what a different thing to be proud of right so i would like us to shift as a society to to just be more conscious of what we're proud of for of ourselves and of our purchasing habits now i'm for instance really proud of myself when i find something secondhand really proud of myself. I like it when I know that it's been used before. And I'm really proud of myself when I find or when I wear my sustainable garments, I feel better. I love it. I'm so proud of those.
0: I mean, it's so true as well, isn't it? This sort of sense of what new age luxury and I struggle with that word. But luxury now is about the conversation, rather than the investment piece being, you know, such an opulent kind of reflection of how well you're doing in life. It's about what's the story behind this piece? And like you say, whether it's yeah. pre-loved or it's from a very purely clean, sustainable brand. And I think this brings me into the the idea of occasion where and Royal Ascot, obviously, where they collaborated with Lovely Bay Garnet and she built the style guide uh, for 2021. And it's all source beautiful pre-loved vintage pieces mm-hmm. and that she was so excited you chose you know a collaboration with a global event like Royal Ascot where historically I think people would have thought this is a big calendar date in the diary I'm going to invest in something uber uber smarty pants and I'm going to walk out feeling head to toe my designer piece look at me and actually the narrative is has completely changed so how can you with your observations of of occasion wear and your understanding of, of what new age luxury should look like and feel like what advice would you give to people who are going to Royal Ascot this year and looking to be a part of this exciting progressive conversation
1: I would say the easiest way to start is to look for vintage dresses or do a swap with your friends that can be so much fun You say, who's going to ask up? What have you worn before? What kind of things do you have? Bring them all here. And you all go through each other's dresses and wear something else that has been worn before. That's the quickest cheat way to reduce your impact always. It's just not buy something new. Mm -hmm. Then if you really want to buy something new, Look at the label, read it. What is it made of? If it's made of polyester, it's definitely a no. If it's made of silk, you just need to know where that silk came from. And mostly silk, even though it's a natural fiber, it does have a pretty negative impact. And that impact comes most highly in the dyeing process. And just watch a few YouTube videos of dye houses in India and you'll pretty soon no longer want to buy that dress. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a pretty quick fix. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And make it fun for yourself, you know, make it a game that, oh, I got one more new sustainable thing or I managed to find this second hand or all of these that it really helps. Mother of Pearl is a great brand because they are they do do occasion wear, which is still unusual in sustainable brands. Most sustainable brands focus on daytime mm-hmm. and casual wear. Mm-hmm. Holistic as well. This collaboration that I did. Uh, we have some beautiful organic silk evening wear dresses that are just extraordinary. Like the silk is the most luxurious feel I've ever felt in silk. And it's so good to know that it came from an organic farm in India and it was dyed with non-toxic organic dyes. And also skim, skim is amazing too. Skim is a, a leather brand, but has some quite appropriate dresses and ensembles that could definitely go to Ascot and look really, really good.
0: What would you say about the whole renting community? Because obviously, initially, we all thought, oh, here's an answer. I don't have to buy a new product. I can have a designer piece and I can rent it and return it. But I know that there's also a whole other side to that story as well. Can you sort of shed some light on that conversation?
1: I was so excited about rental and everyone in sustainability was we We're like wow that is such a good idea of course that's obvious we can all rent each other's clothing and there are a few rentals that do that so by rotation is peer to peer and that's amazing because you are actually getting a dress that belongs to another woman but most of the rental business models now are to onboard new clothes from brands and they tend to be past season clothes from brands that they couldn't get a, get rid of so It's kind of not the most beautiful pieces to begin with, and they're new. So you don't feel like you're really doing such a great service to the earth as you were when it was peer-to-peer. So I'd just say really do a bit of looking into what you're renting. Are you renting something that is secondhand, that was loved by somebody else? Mm -hmm. Or are you just kind of contributing to new stuff? But as I say, it can change. if, If the dress does end up being worn 15 times and prevents 15 women from buying it new... Mm-hmm. great like that's amazing that actually has made a difference
0: I guess that you know obviously for some people who are you know going to Ascot and their whole world of having to identify like you know vintage antique pieces or secondhand pieces or renting it can be a bit overwhelming because you know I guess just as historically you would just buy a piece that you found on Net-A-Porter or go down Bond Street or, you know, that transaction feels a little bit more straightforward. So what advice can you give from a sort of confidence perspective to give people that um, support that they're doing the right thing and that actually you can, you know, interpret such a fantastic part of your individual style by just giving it a go and, and, and experimenting?
1: I'll give my personal experience on borrowing that I as a model have been super lucky to borrow clothes all my life like, or all my professional life because that's whenever you see party pictures of me at a brand event, I'm always borrowing those clothes. It's very unusual that those clothes belong to me. And that's how the fashion system works is because they send us samples and they want us to wear them to parties and then we wear them and then they get p- photographed and then we send them back the next day. I can tell you it is the most comfortable and the easiest way to shop and dress because you just you don't have to store it anywhere it's the it's so nice to have a closet that is not like overcrowded and crushing all the things that you love because it's just too full of too many things
0: so if we're looking at this world of people just gathering up this knowledge, deciding that actually their money is their power, that actually they can dress in a responsible way that's kind to people and planet, what does the world of fashion and occasion wear look like in you know, a couple of years' time through your crystal ball, Arizona Muse?
1: Through my crystal ball, I see that all luxury brands will be producing clothes in a much more responsible way with. sustainable materials. They'll all completely stop using toxic dyes. They will all completely stop using any kind of natural materials that are not grown on organic farms or even better regenerative farms, because that makes a huge difference. Regenerative agriculture could be producing fashion for us, but right now it's not because no one's demanding it. I am starting an organization to work on that issue right there, actually. So watch this space later uh, in the summer.
0: It's so exciting. I mean, this is this is why um, we we launched our, our Feel Good Fellowship together, because I could listen to you all day long. And for any of those listening, you know, do look us up, because Arizona and I started a new community interest company, which is called the Feel Good Fellowship, which is going together to brands to help them to articulate their truths. And we but we have sort of a meeting of minds on that, weren't we? We just sort of really felt that actually yes. that sort of visibility uh, and that education piece to pr- fashion brands and beauty brands communities was actually one of the most crucial parts from a social media click play perspective to start to be surrounded by assets and and, and videos and films that's helped the education piece because that's the big missing part wasn't it?
1: Yeah and it's so much fun and it makes us feel good doesn't it
0: Scott? It certainly does make (laughs) us feel good. So if I could just ask from a sustainability perspective, what's the what's the one major career highlight? And I'd imagine it was we're looking back over the last sort of couple of years from an activist perspective, but what would you say? Obviously you've had amazing accolades as a as a global supermodel, but from an activist perspective, what would you say is like a career highlight?
1: I think all the things that happened to me as an activist are career highlights, actually. And one particularly big one stands out, which is that earlier this year, I was named the Global Advocate for Sustainability for Aveda. Mm -hmm. And this means so much to me. It's the most meaningful partnership I've ever had because they are so sustainable. And they wanted me not just because I was a model, but because I was an activist. Mm -hmm. And that is so cool that that's happening now, that people are choosing me for different reasons.
0: And that, That's it, isn't it? Working and collaborating and partnering and aligning with your principles and values and what you can add to their education and all the amazing work yeah. that they're doing in sustainability. I could chat on and on and on, but I'm sure you've got lots to get on with, as do I. But I hope that we can (laughs) welcome you to Ascot. And I really, really thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation and I send you lots of love down the line.
1: It's always such a pleasure to chat with you. I love it.
0: I love you too. All right, my darling. Have a lovely day. Big kisses. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining our insightful podcast. And we look forward to welcoming you back next time as we catch up with another remarkable voice in fashion, food and all things nice at Royal Ascot. Royal Ascot runs from the 15th to the 19th of June. And for further information, please head to ascot.co.uk.